0: We are delighted to have back with us today Reverend John Burens for part two of his talk on Transcendentalism, specifically women of the Transcendentalist movement. Um, Reverend Burens is a graduate of Harvard Divinity School, and he was also president of the UUA from, let's see, was it 93 to 2001? (laughs) Right. And uh, he is now retired. He was senior minister at the San Francisco Church. He lives locally, so we're very happy to have him here. He's a wonderful resource. And please welcome him back for part two. Uh, Last time I mentioned that I've just finished completing a manuscript called Transcendentalist Disciples, spiritual friendships among Boston activists for anti-slavery, women's rights, and social reform. But if you want to grab something else that I've written, um, the last book I produced really inspired that one. It was called Universalists and Unitarians in America, A People's History. And in that sort of homage to Howard Zinn and uh, trying to do more bottom-up Uh, history rather than top down one of the things that I tried very hard to do was to recover stories of people who are all too often overlooked, almost forgotten in our telling of the tale it's been a a problem I think that uh, in talking about our history as a denomination for example we tend to focus in the 19th century on people uh, who are almost exclusively male Uh, William Ellery Channing Ralph Waldo Emerson, Theodore Parker. I chose for the Unitarian side of the family in that uh, Age of Reform chapter a very different figure as the one who was present at many of the most important occasions, Elizabeth Palmer Peabody. So this morning I'm going to try to talk about uh, five really important female transcendentalists Uh, meaning that I'll give them each about eight minutes, (laughs) I could talk for a good hour about Elizabeth Peabody. And I recommend to you, if you are at all interested in her and her uh, incredible career and family, uh, Megan Marshall's brilliant book, The Peabody Sisters, which won the Pulitzer Prize some years ago. Megan is going to be one of the readers of my manuscript um, this fall. Uh, which sort of intimidates me. I'm also sending it to Robert Richardson, the um, Pulitzer Prize-winning author of Emerson, The Mind on Fire, and a few other uh, creatures of that uh, eminence. Well, Peabody, I think, may have been one of the first Americans to um, use the term transcendental in written work. Moreover, she may have been one of the first people to openly say, I'm a Unitarian. She grew up in, in Salem, um, Massachusetts, uh, which in that era was a port town almost as important as Boston, certainly thriving, a center of the China trade, the India trade, um, absolutely essential to uh, New England commerce. And therefore, full of interesting people who uh, were influenced by uh, sources overseas. Nobody more than a minister named William Bentley, who ended up being one of Thomas Jefferson's close friends. He was the minister of the Unitarian Church that sat right down by the docks. Now, they didn't call it Unitarian just yet. But Bentley was such a polymath that he would say things to, say, the ship captain in his congregation who was going to Europe, uh, to sailing to Marseille, would you get me a copy of that new French-Persian dictionary? I want to teach myself Persian. And he did. He was the only man in America who could read Arabic. He could tell the difference between the different brands of uh, Islam and nobody could do that. When Jefferson was Secretary of State, William Bentley translated the diplomatic correspondence with the various Muslim rulers of North Africa during what were called the Barbary Coast Wars against piracy. Well... Elizabeth grew up in that environment, and since both of her parents were teachers and she was the eldest child, she was given an extraordinary education and prepared very carefully by her mother to be able to earn her own living as a teacher. You know, in the 19th century, being female, was dangerous. Marriage itself had its perils, as Elizabeth realized watching her own parents' marriage, because her father, Dr. Nathaniel Peabody, who had been prepared to practice medicine, somehow, by personality, was so unsuited to actually. Buckling down and forming relationships with people, that he never successfully earned a living for the family at all. And there were six children to support. It's uh, some indication of just how uh, feckless he was that all three of his sons ended up being abject failures. The daughters, on the other hand, prepared as survivors by their mother, who was also named Elizabeth Palmer Peabody, made enormous impacts. Elizabeth and her sister Mary went into Boston attracted by William Ellery Channing. Their mother had taken them to hear him preach. And even then he was known as somebody whose sermons were accessible even to children. And emotionally grounded. Elizabeth was so taken with Channing that she went to him at his Federal Street Church when she moved into Boston as a young woman of 19 and said, help me start a school. Channing did so. It was a little shaky financially, but um, it got underway, that at a certain point, the two sisters went up to Maine as tutors for, for children, came back, and by that point, she would be, Elizabeth became the assistant to Bronson Alcott at his innovative school, the Temple School, where um, many of the Boston elite were sending their children. And I think I described last time about how uh, Alcott's school collapsed, Elizabeth made it very popular because she actually documented in uh, her record of a school, a first book that she published, how Alcott's methods actually took children seriously. Didn't just look for rote learning or discipline children arbitrarily with the feral, the cane, In fact, if a child was so recalcitrant as to be unpersuaded to good behavior, um, Alcott's method was to hand the cane to the child and say, I have failed you as a teacher, strike my hand. Of course, the predictable result was that the child was too ashamed to do that. Elizabeth warned against publishing all of the conversations that he had with children especially those about religion because he was very Socratic, very open and yet he went ahead and published conversations with children on the Gospels in which he was open enough to discuss with children topics like what's a virgin? Explain circumcision etc. And the readership, of course, was horrified. People withdrew their children from the schools. By this time, Elizabeth was working uh, directly for Channing, basically as a kind of combination governess for the children, especially his daughter Mary, and volunteer secretary. She lived in the home much of the time. Uh, she would talk with uh, with Channing about his sermons. She would go on walks with him on Saturdays as he was still developing the sermon idea and help him expand it. She would devel- She developed her own system of um, shorthand and took notes on how He expatiated on certain parts of his text when he was actually preaching and prepared his sermons for publication. She did this with almost 200 sermons over the years. So you can see how close she was to Channing. This is a great example of what I call spiritual friendship. Um, It wasn't a romance, but it was this... Deep concern, this is the essential thing I want you to understand about the transcendentalists. That I have an interest in your full development as a spiritual and moral being. Just as I hope you will have a concern for my full development as a spiritual and moral being. Because only that way can we develop what is a more authentic and open and creative and just community. One of the most remarkable things that Megan Marshall discovered about Elizabeth Peabody was that she was so wary of marriage herself based on not only her mother's experience but also stories that her mother had passed on of domestic violence and drunkenness and abuse that other Palmer women had experienced. That Elizabeth as the eldest sister decided to make darn sure that her younger sisters did not marry scoundrels, or wastrels, or people unable to support them. She was a fascinating person And for a period, she and Mary lived in a boarding house on Beacon Hill run by Rebecca Clark. Among the other um, boarders there was a remarkable young lawyer named Horace Mann. Rather deeply depressed, already a leader in the legislature, his first wife, Charlotte, had died of tuberculosis, the endemic disease of the era. So many. Emerson's first wife died. She was not yet 20. Had been married 15 months. It was very similar for Horace Mann. Both Elizabeth and Mary did everything they could to draw Horace Mann out of his depression to interest him in life, to tell him how, what a difference he could make uh, in the world. It was Elizabeth who got him to go hear Dr. Channing preach on Easter when Channing spoke about two tragic deaths in his own family and the faith that had sustained him through those tragedies. Man came away from it, converted to a Unitarian understanding of how, let me put it this way, there is at least an immortality of influence that we each leave behind. That the quality with which we use our time matters. That Charlotte's memory would never be erased. That she was with him forever. It was shortly after that that Horace Mann, talking with Channing, decided that his chief legislative goal was going to be to see to it that children of every social class and background had access to free universal public education. He himself had grown up in a farm family in rural Franklin, Massachusetts, where he only got Maybe six weeks of schooling a year. Completely inadequate. He had been lucky enough to have a mother who read to him and uh, to find, to use the local library. He got himself a scholarship to the college that became Brown. Um, He'd become a lawyer. But he knew the need for education. This was a bond between. The two Peabody sisters in the boarding house and, and Horace. Megan found the evidence that actually there was a secret engagement between Horace Mann and Elizabeth Peabody. But then she stepped back and handed him off to Mary. I hope you know that Horace Mann uh, had not only a distinguished career in launching free public education in the United States, but was also a member of Congress for a time as a free soil uh, representative an anti-slavery advocate. He was the first uh, effective president of Antioch College in Ohio, which was a Unitarian project at its origins. And he gave the college its motto, Be ashamed to die before you have made a difference for others. So the other relationship that uh, Elizabeth entered into was with the brilliant and stunningly handsome young author Nathaniel Hawthorne. The family had gone back to uh, Salem, basically to help old Dr. Peabody, Nathaniel, through one of his periodic financial crises. And the Hawthorns lived just down the street, another old Salem family. Hawthorn's mother was a virtual recluse. She'd lost her husband, who was a ship captain, uh, when the children were quite young, and she had sort of closeted herself in black and was hardly ever seen in public and the children were deeply affected by this including Nathaniel I, I actually think that there's a portrait of him that hangs in the uh, Peabody Essex Museum in, um, in Salem that um, he was he had movie star good looks <laughs> and I actually think that his shyness And his mother's reclusiveness made him uh, equally reclusive. After he graduated from college, he spent much of his time, uh, because the family had some means, uh, just up in his room writing. But Elizabeth got him and his sisters to come over for an evening. She was so taken with the stories that he was beginning to publish anonymously that she took it upon herself to actually become his publicity agent, encouraged him to publish under his own name, to try a longer form than just stories like a, a full novel. Again, she secretly became engaged to Nathaniel Hawthorne and then handed him off to her sister, Sophia. (laughs) You can't make this stuff up. Sophia was the artist in the family, the youngest of the three sisters. She and Nathaniel were both uh, kind of the shy people in their thoughtful families. Uh, They had their honeymoon at the Old Manse in Concord, Rented to them cheap by Ralph Waldo Emerson. And if you visit that wonderful place, you can actually see love notes from their almost year-long honeymoon there. Scratched by Sophia Peabody Hawthorne with her diamond ring in the glass panes of the window overlooking the Concord River and the Old North Bridge. Amazing. Well, these days Elizabeth Peabody is remembered largely for her late life project, which was launching early childhood education, bringing the German kindergarten movement to America. But she should be remembered as the absolute hub of the transcendentalist movement with her bookstore on West Street as its true center. And as the major link between the generation of of William Ellery Channing, with whom she was uh, very close, and the transcendentalist circle into which she was brought by Emerson and James Freeman Clark, and others who deeply admired not only her intellect, her commitment, to drawing people out into full spiritual and moral flourishing, but also her gift for languages. Um, She, like Bentley, was constantly trying to learn a new language. Uh, Among other things, when she was the publisher of The Dial, the uh, journal of the Transcendentalist Circle, she published the first translation of the Lotus Sutra, the first Buddhist sacred text, to appear in an American publication. She didn't translate it from the Sanskrit. She translated it from the French translation of the Sanskrit. But she was in the Transcendentalist Circle in no small part because she was like Margaret Fuller, her, in some respects, protégé, quite fluent in German. And German was the language of the idealist philosophers that were the initial uh, topic of the, the Transcendentalist Circle. So let me turn a little bit to Margaret Fuller, who is probably the one female member of the Transcendentalist Circle who is uh, most remembered. In 1839, when Peabody moved back to Boston and set up 13 West Street, one of the first events that took place at that address was a series of public conversations for women conducted by Margaret Fuller. Again, Margaret had had the privilege of a remarkable education for a woman. Remember, there were no colleges for women at all. But her father, Congressman Timothy Fuller, Cambridge, had treated his eldest child, Margaret, almost as though he were preparing her for Harvard. Harvard. At one point, he wrote back from Washington to uh, his wife, who was also named Margaret. Tell little Margaret that I love her, if she learns her Latin. (laughs) And by six, Margaret was reciting Virgil. And again, going on with other languages, French first, studying German, as I described last week, with James Freeman Clark. The conversations were an attempt to bring this transcendentalist philosophy of, come on, you have more spiritual and moral creativity and influence than you're using. Bring it to women. The conversations went on in paid series for five years between 1839 and 1844, with Margaret having an impact on women who in many of their households, you know, were just entirely confined to the domestic sphere. And who were often married to um, people who'd had the benefit of a college education, who studied Latin and Greek and the myths. So one of the most interesting things that Margaret did was that she conversed with people about Greek myth, classical mythology. Often taking in an, an interpretation of it, as in the story of, say, Cupid and Psyche, that lifted up the female characters as being equally as important as the male characters, and saying, you, basically, you know, your husbands study this stuff at college, you should know it and be able to assert your own interpretations of this shared high culture but there was more than that it was also preparing women to take a more active role in reform movements at the time especially anti-slavery and one should never minimize how important the role of women was were in the um, uh, there was great controversy of course about whether women should speak in public about um, whether men and women should form joint uh, advocacy groups or whether there should be sort of female auxiliaries. The Boston Female Anti-Slavery Society was an important uh, branch of the abolitionist movement in Boston. People who sat in on Margaret Fuller's um, conversations... Um, included, well, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who was uh, in the last series, who went on, of course, to be with Susan D. Anthony, one of the major leaders of the women's suffrage movement. All, the bulk of these conversations took place at, at Peabody's bookstore at 13 West Street. That's why I worked with Megan Marshall to get a plaque put up on the building. Uh, I think it's a historic center. Uh, in the history of human rights and especially women's rights in the United States. It's also, by the way, where Mary Peabody married Horace Mann and where Sophia Peabody married Nathaniel Hawthorne, the same building. Um, What shall I say more about Margaret? I talked last week a little bit about her remarkable relationship with James Freeman Clark who started the first Transcendentalist journal when he was the minister in Louisville Kentucky, the Western Messenger and where he published Margaret's first uh, literary criticism and essays encouraging her to discover that she could be a writer just as she was encouraging him to be uh, an effective preacher and religious leader again that, that concern for full flourishing that lies behind the Transcendentalist movement well the reason she ended up doing the conversations was that her father, and this was a constant problem for women in, in the 1960s, her father up and died and left his financial affairs a total mess. And in, believe it or not, he was a lawyer and a congressman, and he had no will. His brother, who was an unmarried and nasty man, Um, took over control of the family finances and had absolutely no use for an uppity young woman who wanted to do things like travel to Europe. Margaret found a way to get there. What is often forgotten about her is that after several experiences doing what Peabody had done, teaching as a way of earning a living, first in Boston with Alcott and then at a progressive school in Providence, Rhode Island, she became America's first woman journalist going to work for Horace Greeley at the New York Tribune. And there doing some of the first investigative reporting that was uh, ever done. She would go to places like the prison, the state prison at Sing Sing, and especially interview the female Inmates, prisoners. She developed a real sense of what it was that drove people to crime. She was doing source work on prostitution, um, slavery, uh, not only based on race, but uh, based on gender on the the social conditions in the new institutions, the hospitals, asylums, jails that were uh, developing as America urbanized. This uh, set of uh, investigative reports really has yet to be fully published. But um, is a, a just a treasure trove of some very profound social insights. She was also working on um, the, the the men in the Transcendentalist circle. At a certain point, uh, couldn't cooperate well enough with one another to keep the dial going. Peabody ended up taking over the business part, and Margaret Fuller uh, became the editor. Uh, with, she would get promises from the male members of the Transcendental Circle that, oh yes, they'd send her a piece, and it wouldn't arrive for the, by the deadline. And so she'd have to write something herself. One of the longest pieces she ever wrote was called The Great Lawsuit. Man versus men, woman versus women. In which she out of her own experience, talked about how stereotypes for both genders impacted uh, and limited their uh, creativity and engagement in the world. This was especially true, of course, for women. And there she went on at some length. Her most famous statement being, and if you ask what spheres should be open to women, I say, let them be sea captains. <laughs> All fields to be open. Well, this was hardly the case in her time. In 1848, she persuaded, Greeley to let her make that trip she'd always wanted to Europe. She'd mastered German and French and Italian. Um... She ended up meeting some of the leading revolutionaries of 19th century Europe. Uh, Giuseppe Mazzini, uh, the Polish uh, patriot and poet, Adam Minskiewicz, whose great-great-great-granddaughter, by the way, is studying for the Unitarian Ministry at Star King these days. there's some possibility that Mitzkiewicz may have been the man who persuaded her that staying a virgin at 38 was really a waste. (laughs) In any case, when she got to Rome, she fell head over heels in love with a young Italian named Giovanni Ossoli, who was an officer in the Republican Guards that had risen up against the papacy. When I was in Rome last January, I had the privilege of going around to see the hospital where Margaret became the superintendent, still there on an island in the Tiber, the apartment where she lived, where she could look across the Corso, the main avenue of Rome, um, to the apartment where Goethe had lived during his time in Rome. And of course, I think you know the tragic end of the story that Margaret and her husband and their child, Nino, were on a ship headed back for New York, I think she must have been scared to death about how she was going to be received. Already women were chattering about how she'd married a man 11 years her junior. Or had she really married him? They had a child together, but how could they have married in Catholic Italy? Because only Catholics were allowed to have official marriages. There's still no documentary evidence that a marriage did take place, although, when the child was baptized, um, it described um, Margarita Fuller, heterodox, heterodox, heretic, and Giovanni. The Marchese di Ossoli. The father, sposato, married presumably to her and not somebody else. Well, the ship floundered seeking the entrance to um, New York Harbor. It was near it was this season, it was near hurricane force winds. Um, the ship was loaded with marble um, Carrara marble, and uh, it went through the hull as the ship hit the sandbar off Fire Island. Everybody tried to get to shore. It was only about two or three hundred yards away. Finally, the cook grabbed the child out of Margaret's arms and tried to swim to shore. Both drowned. Ossoli had already been swept overboard. And Margaret was the last person seen on the sh- still on the ship as it broke up. Her body was never found. Giovanni Osoli's body was never found. The body of the baby was first buried in the sand by a woman who had escaped the ship. And then when Emerson sent Thoreau and the Fuller family sent her brother Arthur, who later became a Unitarian minister, the child was disinterred and removed to the Mount Auburn Cemetery in Cambridge, where there is still a monument to Margaret Fuller, her husband and son. But it is only the child that's buried there. Her friends, Emerson and James Freeman Clark and William Henry Channing, will all hastened to try to make sure that her reputation and legacy was preserved. They, they published the memoir of Margaret Fuller Ausley with lots of excerpts of her writing and her, from her diaries, those that had been saved in her letters, insisting that she, of course, had been properly married. It was the most popular book in America for almost a year and a half until it was swept off the bestseller list by a little novel called Uncle Tom's Cabin. (laughs) The impact that Margaret Fuller had on the feminist movement can't be underestimated. If she had lived, she would have been asked to be the presiding officer at the first major women's rights convention following Seneca Falls, which was held in 1850 in Worcester, Massachusetts. Instead, the presiding officer was a woman named Pauline Davis, who published a feminist journal called Una. And another important figure at that gathering was Carolyn Healy Dahl, the third person I want to speak about this morning, because she is almost entirely unknown. And yet, in 1850, many people expected her to become the next Margaret Fuller. She had been the youngest participant in Fuller's conversations at the age of 19. Ultimately, Carolyn Healy Dahl wrote 22 books. She founded the American Social Science Association. She did much of the same kind of social investigation of the condition of women that Margaret had done when she worked for the Tribune. The first studies of women's access to education and the professions. This was just beginning. few colleges like Antioch and Oberlin were beginning to admit women. Mary Lyons Academy at Mount Holyoke where Emily Dickinson balked at being converted uh, was beginning to open. But (coughs) the roots of the American women's rights movement really lie in uh, Margaret Fuller's conversations and in this transcendentalist conviction that we simply must allow everyone to more fully participate spiritually and morally in, uh, in community and in democracy. Carolyn had every reason to feel the same way. Like the other women I've described, she had been given the privilege of an education that was denied to most other women. Her father was a fairly wealthy um, uh, Boston banker. Until the so-called panic of 1837 when he went bankrupt and all of a sudden no men were interested in marrying Carol and Healy Doll. No dowry. She went down to Washington to be a teacher and at Christmas went to the services at what today is called All Souls Church. Uh, but I think I, I mentioned, uh, in those days, the Unitarian services were held in the rotunda of the U.S. Capitol. That's how influential the Unitarians were in that building. Um, the preacher at Christmas was a young minister to the poor of the city of Baltimore named um, a Charles Henry Appleton Dahl. Margaret probably should have exercised a bit more of Elizabeth Peabody's prudence. She married him within six months. She wanted to work with him among the poor. There was only one problem. Dahl was a complete failure at raising the money to support his efforts to do ministry among the poor. He lost job after job, including... His position finally took on a parish, the first parish in Needham, Massachusetts, where later I spent a decade, uh, between 2002 and 2012, and lasted two years. A lot of people say that um, said that Carolyn was the reason that her husband lost his pulpit. She shocked the farm ladies of Needham, Massachusetts in 1848 by coming out with a book of essays one of which condemned the Mexican War another of which called for the immediate abolition of slavery and the third of which was entitled Sisterhood she was 22 her biographer says The Reverend Mr. Dahl probably could have lost his pulpit all by himself. (laughs) But there's one tragedy that took place. Carolyn gave birth to a stillborn child that had deformities. The senior deacon of the church was, was, that first parish was a mix of everybody in town. Baptists, Calvinists, Unitarians, Universalists. The Unitarians were the dominant force. But the senior deacon was an old Calvinist physician who delivered this stillborn child and declared that clearly the sovereign God of the universe had put a curse on Carolyn and her husband for their heretical and radical views he tried another ministry in Toronto, it failed Carolyn was shocked when her husband came home one day and announced that um, he'd accepted a new post in ministry in Calcutta and that he would be going alone and sending the bulk of his stipend back to her. He agreed to be an American Unitarian missionary in a project that British Unitarians had started, which was to conduct a school for girls in Calcutta, something that India knew not of at that time. And by the way, um, he later uh, played a role in helping a young man named Hajim Kisser Singh from the Khasi Hills in northeast India start a Unitarian movement there. Well, I've now covered just three people and I noticed that I've covered 45 minutes of our time. Let me just briefly tell you a couple of stories about two other women. I think the most forgotten person in the transcendentalist circles is Lydia Mariah Child. Today she's remembered largely for a little ditty that she wrote in a children's magazine that she published for a while Over the River and Through the Woods to Grandfather's House We Go to, the Thanksgiving song. But oh my Lord. She was the daughter of a baker in Medford, Massachusetts. She and her brother were clearly very bright and were given attention by the local Calvinist minister and access to education and books. Her brother went on to Harvard, became the Unitarian minister in Watertown and the moderator of the Transcendentalist Circle since he was its oldest member, later a professor at Harvard Divinity School. Lydia made the mistake that Elizabeth Peabody tried to avoid. She married the wrong guy. David Lee Child was a young activist attorney, very uh, much engaged in the uh, anti-slavery movement and in journalism about it, but he had a terrible tendency to lose law cases and to be found guilty of having libeled somebody in his publications. He was constantly in debt eventually uh, Lydia Mariah Child had to separate her finances from David's she had become the editor of the national anti-slavery standard the most important um, publication in the abolitionist movement other than Garrison's liberator uh, working out of New York there by the way she overlapped with Margaret Fuller they knew one another they did uh, things together Uh, in order to make a living, Lydia Mariah Child not only published children's literature and a, a actually quite successful book of household advice called The Frugal Housewife, or how to make do when you have practically nothing, she also published a three volume study of the progress of religious ideas through the ages, through successive ages. A two-volume study of the history of women. Again, in, in really remarkably universal perspective. She was not always a Unitarian. She had been attracted to the Swedenborgian movement in no small part because uh, Emanuel Swedenborg's sort of mystical vision of things had a place for equality of men and women. But her transcendentalist convictions were constant and uh, resulted in her being a, a leading figure in uh, the uh, women's rights movement and uh, after the the Civil War in what became known as the Free Religious Association. Carolyn Karcher, the remarkable scholar, has done a brilliant job of collecting Lydia Mariah Child's uh, writings and writing her biography. I I really commend it to you. Uh, William Lloyd Garrison called her the First Lady of the Republic. No one more important. And I should have mentioned right away that one of her earliest publications, 1833, an appeal on behalf of that class of Americans known as Africans, 1833, was a more persuasive piece of abolitionist literature than anything Garrison ever published. William Ellery Channing, given a copy, although he was in terrible health, walked all the way across town from his townhouse on Beacon Hill to Child's Little Cottage on Roxbury Neck and sat with her for an entire afternoon, saying that now for him the only question was how would he be involved in the anti slavery cause? Not whether. I could go on. I could tell you about Julia Ward Howe, who married a dashing reformer of Byronic character, Samuel Gridley Howe, who had, like Byron, gone to fight the Turks for Greek independence become a physician, started the Perkins School for the Blind, become famous for teaching its first deaf-mute young woman, Laura Bridgman, how to communicate. But Sam was an unreconstructed chauvinist who resented the fact that his wife, 18 years his junior, brought up in some privilege in New York, wrote poetry, instead of tending to the servants. That she <clears throat> wanted to speak in public. That she had an ambition to be an author and a writer. If it weren't for James Freeman Clark and that transcendentalist congregation of his called the Church of the Disciples, I don't know what would have become of Julia. In that congregation, lay people preached as well as the minister. Julia went to the pulpit. Following the Civil War, when Sam had died, she founded the Women's Ministerial Association, the first such thing in the United States. Not that she'd ever been to seminary or been ordained, but she knew she was a minister. She's famous, of course, primarily for the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Her husband had been one of the six supporters of John Brown. They were in Washington. He was one of the commissioners of the Sanitary Commission, the precursor of the Red Cross. And they heard soldiers singing, John Brown's Body Lies a Moldering in the Grave. Julia was with her minister, Clark, who said the soldiers clearly love that rousing tune. It's a pity it doesn't have more appropriate words. And that night she penned that immortal hymn. Very struck by it being sung at the John McCain Memorial a couple of days ago, a couple of weeks ago. So those are the five women I wanted to tell you about. Now let me give you a chance to uh, make your inquiries and comments about the women transcendentalists. Thank you. I knew eight minutes was not going to be enough for each of those women. Thank you very much. Are there any questions? Is it really right to call the Dial magazine somehow a Unitarian publication? a lot of people assumed that the reason that they stopped meeting was that they started the publication. I, I, that's not the case. They stopped meeting in 1840 because they reached uh, an impasse on the question of church reform. That was the original purpose of the Transcendental Circle in 1836 to bring a spiritual and intellectual and moral revival to the Unitarian churches. But by 1840, George Ripley who was the original convener of the circle had given up on the church. he resigned his pulpit. He was starting Brook Farm. And um, he and Frederick Henry Hedge who Emerson referred to the circle as Hedge's club, was Another key figure. Emerson had given up on the church. Lost interest in, in trying to. Uh, he said everything he had to say uh, in his Divinity School address, and it had not been well received. So, uh, um, but there were people like Elizabeth Peabody, Frederick Henry Hedge, Theodore Parker, who were not going to give up on the church, James Freeman Clark. And it leads directly to the formation of the, uh, the Church of the Disciples. I demonstrate that pretty clearly in my book. But everybody associated with the dial was also Unitarian and Transcendentalist, Um, with the possible exception of somebody like Thoreau, who quit the church. Uh, They were, you know, like-minded individuals. Emerson was quite disappointed in the dial, and I think justifiably. It became more of a literary um, journal than one uh, devoted to any uh, clear path to social change. Um, Fuller pushed against that as best she could. But the, um, I think Emerson is really the guy who's guilty of pushing it in that direction. He wanted the Dial to publish things like Alcott's Orphic sayings, which were, uh, frankly, a bit of gibberish, philosophical gibberish, um, or uh, some of uh, Thoreau's uh, so-called poems. Um, the literary quality in the Dial went up and down but it, it comes out of our circles. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, one of the ideas of the transcendentalists, well, first of all, the definition of transcending materialism uh, yeah. was one of the definitions you used. Um, often is said to be the opposite of imminence. Now, I'm a big fan of immanence. And when the transcendentalists um, write, they tend to never mention it. And yet um, uh, our faith... Um, Unitarian Universalism, uh, perhaps because of the Universalists, seems to have a very deep root in the Quakers and Congregationalists and people who really believe in eminence. Are any of these w- women writers, did they write about eminence? So. <laughs> <yeah. clears throat> Namaste. about what I would call the vertical dimension of spirituality. Uh, transcendence being that which goes sort of upward, immanence being that which comes downward. I think actually the greatest significance of the transcendentalist movement as a whole is in the horizontal dimension of spirituality, which is the ethical dimension. Um on the subject of imminence many of the transcendentalists who were influenced by Swedenborg held to his uh, idea that every object in the material world is a symbol of a spiritual and ideal truth they Emerson very much saw language that way. When you scrape apart many of our more abstract terms in philosophy and uh, language, you find at the core something quite concrete. And the, the doctrine of correspondences is very strong among all of these. This is why, say, Margaret Fuller was teaching Greek mythology to those women and having them relate it to their daily life and experience as women. Yeah, it it, it is a kind of an anticipation of Jungian archetypes. Yeah, no no question. One or two more. Here, here comes Anne with the, with the talking stick. Was there any opposition to the Transcendentalists among unit, some Unitarians? Oh, God, yes. Can you briefly say what, what the op, uh, opposition was? Yeah, sure. Um, <coughs> that Andrews Norton, who was sometimes called the Unitarian Pope, Uh, was the Dexter Professor of Biblical Literature at Harvard Divinity School, and when Emerson gave his Divinity School address, he pronounced it, quote, the latest form of infidelity. Unquote. Uh, The great sin for him was that uh, Emerson clearly believed in Forms of inspiration, spiritual and moral inspiration, that did not go through the Bible. And that he didn't, the transcendentalists as a whole, bought into an approach to biblical criticism that was quite different from um, the, that of standard Unitarianism of the time. Which was um, still held to the idea that the authority of Jesus, for example, depended on his miraculous uh, resurrection from the dead and from his performance of miracles during his life. Emerson said, there's one miracle. I can raise my arm. Life is the miracle to be reverenced. So there develops a a considerable split between the uh, more traditionalist Unitarians and uh, Theodore Parker virtually got excommunicated. The only person who would exchange pulpits with him was James Freeman Clark. Again, a really profound example of the, the commitment to spiritual friendship despite the fact that you and I don't entirely agree. When Parker got ill with tuberculosis and went first to the Caribbean and then to the Mediterranean to try to seek a cure, uh, Clark (laughs) went to to, to Parker's pulpit at the 28th Congregational Society and wrote to him in Rome, I I preached for your people last week. Of course I told them I I love you, but I don't agree with your ideas. (laughs) And they left. So, um, yes, there were some great tensions. By the time of the end of the Civil War, though, basically uh, transcendentalism in one form or another has prevailed among Unitarians. And the Andrews Norton generation is gone, and their sort of more materialistic interpretation of, say, biblical miracles is old hat. So, yes, there were uh, great divisions. Uh, Even after the Civil War, you get a a real tension between people who loved Parker and his sort of um, lecture hall approach to church, which had some weaknesses. Never had a Sunday school. Never had any organizations that actually took on social projects. It just was an audience on Sunday morning. But there were people who thought, well, that's the way to go. And you had the free church movement and the free religious association develop. Um, People like Clark and Henry Whitney Bellows and Thomas Starr King were much more devoted to the traditional patterns of congregational life, where We pitch in on social projects. We teach the young. We care for the elderly. We've got a pastoral ministry to one another. And um, one of the things that I I think was really off in some of our historiography was because of the dominance of the humanist movement in the post-war period, The Free Religious Association was described as though they had been the really smart ones. They never had more than 300 members. And um, Emerson got bored with them. He said, uh, you know, I think we've had creed killing enough. He, too, realized that it is in the maintenance of deep friendship that we build authentic community. And out of that, we build a better human future, uh, a more authentic sense of inclusiveness and democracy. That's what I would have you remember about the transcendentalists. One last question from the lady there. Over here. Oh, 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 she's got the talking stick. Mike, quick, Um, when and how can we get your book? Mm. And and what's your next one? So... um, uh, the one that I alluded to at the beginning is out in, in print. In fact, it's gone into a second edition. It's called Universalists and Unitarians in America, A People's History. It is a parallel account of both the Universalist side of the family and the Unitarian side of the family through uh, 150 years. And uh, you can get that from the UUA bookstore. It's a Skinner House publication. Fifteen bucks, as I recall. Um, <clears throat> Transcendentalist Disciples won't be published until next September. Um, it's going out to people like Megan Marshall uh, next week. Um, then I have to uh, incorporate their uh, feedback and final manuscript submission is in December. But the book's written. So what are you writing after that? Ah. Um, I'm going to do two things. Uh, a comprehensive history of Unitarianism here in the Bay Area. Um, focusing primarily on on the church in San Francisco but uh, with some allusions Um, I I, I got interested in the man who uh, got fired as the minister of this church in the 1920s for signing the Humanist Manifesto Uh, his grandson is in the San Francisco congregation
1: Hmm.
0: I wanted to to know when did women first become Unitarian ministers uh, in the 1850s Okay, so that's a slightly complicated story, but that, that's the, the, the answer. Yep. Last question. Yep. Okay, I'm really interested in if any of these um, women transcendentalists approach the topic of birth control or the refusal mm. of conjugal rights. Mm. Very delicately. <laughs> Very delicately. Um, Elizabeth Peabody, who never married, was a complete prude on the subject. And she just excoriated uh, Carolyn Healy Dahl for uh, even alluding to such matters in public presentations with a mixed audience. um, But yes, people like Dahl were um, in a rather indirect way, it was a sort of Victorian way of discussing human sexuality, uh, beginning to talk about such things, and um, uh, particularly the, um, the exploitation of, uh, of women, uh, sexually and otherwise. Um, it, it, even Julia Ward Howe, who bore her husband's six children um, begins after the Civil War with the women's club movement. Believe it or not, to encourage women to discuss such things. So this is a, this anticipates Margaret Sanger and the um, you know the birth control movement of the 20th century. But they're at least beginning to talk uh, about. Um, women's control over their own bodies. All right, I think we should wrap it up. Thank you so much. <clears throat> Pleasure to do this.